1: Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And
0: April Callahan. Dressed listeners, today we are finally making good on a promise for a very much requested episode. (laughs)
1: Yes, we are so excited for today's episode, Um, and that is because we are finally fulfilling more than a few listener requests that have come to us over the years for an episode on Emily Fluga, the Viennese fashion designer who is perhaps best known for being the longtime companion, of course, and muse to the painter Gustav Klimt. Their unique relationship often overshadows discussion of Emily's own design career. And as we certainly discovered, the art historical canon has enshrined Klimt into its pantheon with countless scholarly articles, books, exhibitions we all know and love him. But Emily's career has really been subject to far less scholarly inquiry.
0: Which, of course, makes her harder to research. (laughs) So listeners, Felicia Gutierrez and Lauren, who goes by the Dire Rolf on Instagram, we did hear your requests when you submitted them oh so long ago. It just took us a little bit to gather sufficient information to finally bring you this episode on Emily, the Schwestern Floga fashion house, and the Floga sisters' personal ties and professional collaborations with arguably one of the most famous modern painters of all time, Gustav Klimt.
1: So born in Vienna on August 30th, 1874, Emily was the fourth and youngest child of Ehrman and Barbara Floga. From his father, Erman had learned the art of wood turning, but later parlayed his skill into crafting fine smoking pipes, the demand for which afforded the Floga family an upper middle-class lifestyle. And
0: it seems that destiny ordained the paths of the Floga and the Klimp families to meet. Some evidence suggests that Hermann Floga and Gustav Klimt's father, Ernst, may have actually met in their youth in art school. Ernst's career as a gold engraver paralleled that of Hermann's as a fellow craftsman, making early familial ties distinctly possible. What we know for certain, however, is the link between the two families became official in 1891 when Emily's older sister, Helene, married Gustav Klimt's younger brother, Ernst, Jr. But, Cass, sadly, this marriage did not last terribly long, not because they weren't getting along. But Ernst Jr. died the following year, um, following the marriage, leaving behind an infant daughter who was only a few months old.
1: Oh, that's so sad. It is. So, you know, after his brother passed, Gustav was actually named as his niece's guardian. And that further cemented the ties between the Floga and Klimt families. And at the time of her sister Helene's marriage, Emily would have been 17. And it's at this age that Gustav actually first painted her. 12 years her senior, Klimt seems to have been captivated by his young relation by marriage. Emily has been described as, quote, a tall, slender figure with long limbs, dark hair parted in the middle with broad cheekbones, blue eyes, and full lips. Never made up, a figure reduced to simplicity and clarity of outward appearance.
0: The friendship between Gustav and Emily seems to have developed, thanks in part, to the fact that the two did not require a chaperone while in each other's company as he was considered family. And the intimacy between the two spanned three decades and has been the subject of much art historical scrutiny. As much as we would like to reveal to you all that Emily and Gustav became embroiled in a highly passionate sexual relationship— it seems that the two may never have actually been lovers in the physical sense. Instead, the love that existed between them was a rare and abiding platonic affection of the deepest kind. And we will continue to explore their relationship further as we move through this episode.
1: So what does fashion have to do with this story, right? Well, it actually enters stage left now in our story as by 1895, Emily's older sister, Pauline, had opened a training school for dressmakers, which we love. Herself an educator, it was possibly Pauline who taught Emily the art of dressmaking. And we cannot say for certain, but sometime around 1899, the three sisters, Emily, Helene, and Pauline, were known to be working together in the fashion trade. In late 1903, the three sisters actually moved into an exceptionally large apartment in the Casa Piccola building on Maria Hilferstrasse and converted a portion of it into their fledgling fashion house, which became known as Schwestern Floga or the Floga Sisters.
0: Opening its doors in July of 1904, Schwestern Floga launched fully formed into the elite artistic circles of Vienna. Pauline, the eldest, was aged 39, Helene, 34, and Emily, 31. And the sisters' now decade-plus familial relationship with the famed Gustav Klimt stood them in good stead. The acknowledged enfant terrible of the Viennese art scene, Klimt's work garnered international attention around the turn of the century, shortly after his formation of the Vienna Succession Movement in 1897. Gustav helmed this design and artistic movement, which has been described as the German branch of Art Nouveau.
1: Yeah, and one of the succession's fellow founding members was Josef Hoffman, who would go on to find the weiner Werkstatt in 1903. The close relationship between Klimt and Hoffman and other members of the weiner Werkstatt surely placed Emily in their orbit as well. So it is little wonder that the Werkstatt was tapped to design the interiors of the Schwestern-Floga fashion salon.
0: And just a brief word on the weiner Werkstatt. Translating to Vienna workshop, the Weiner Werkstatt was conceived as a vehicle for the commercial endeavors of the members of the succession and its future adherents. Patterning itself somewhat on the British arts and crafts movement, the Weiner Werkstatt believed in the incorporation of art into one's everyday life through everyday objects, which translated into the dissolution of traditional hierarchies between artistic mediums. Textile or wallpaper design in their eyes held an equal footing as fine painting or sculpture and much of the artistic production of the Weiner Werkstätte focused on artisanal craft in the realms of furniture, ceramics, glass and metalwork, graphic design, bookbinding, and even garden and interior design. And dressed listeners, the Weiner Werkstatt is a fascinating topic on its own right, which is why we have made it the subject of this coming Thursday's episode, where we are going to learn all about the Weiner Werkstatt and the influence of Viennese dress reform on its creations.
1: In early commission for the newly formed Werkstatt, the interiors of Schwester Floga were the cutting edge of modern interior design. In an interview, Schwestern Floga employee Herta Ivanka described the fashion house's interiors for us. So she says, quote, the hall, which was a room that was quite plainly decorated, led into the salon. The salon was very large and furnished in the Jugendstil fashion. The walls were of white lacquer, and there were pictures by Kolo Moiser let into the walls in black frames, which showed ladies in beautiful clothes. Then there were two Jugendstil tables and high back chairs from the weiner on one side, there was a wood-burning, tiled stove with a wonderfully embroidered dragon above it, and on the other side, there were glass display cases with beautiful embroideries, Hungarian national costumes, and Slovakian needlework, which were something quite exquisite. Even then, all the floors were covered wall-to-wall with light gray felt, end quote.
0: And apparently, this wall-to-wall felt cast was done so that clients could go barefoot. Well, drying on their garments. And I guess the felt was intended to keep their feet warm. But I found it really kind of entertaining that this wall to wall installation of floor coverings was considered to be, quote, of the most modern fashion at the time.
1: Hmm, interesting.
0: <laughs> yeah. Instead of rugs, you had the wall to wall coverings. So the offices and a cabin room, which housed the house models who showed garments live for clients, were also decorated in a similarly Starkly modern black and white color palette. And this really complemented the firm's Vanguard designs, which were part of the nascent Viennese dress reform movement.
1: Which, again, we're going to learn a lot more about on Thursday's episode. So, a portrait of Emily by Klimt from 1902 appears to evidence the fact that Emily was entrenched in the Viennese dress reform movement prior to the opening of the Schwestern Floga in 1904. The deep blue dress she wears is intensely patterned. It's the most lovely portrait in golden squares and circles and light-colored specks that are scattered across the surface like stars in the night sky. The dress flows from Emily's shoulders in an unbroken column, and it flows to the ground with no defined waist. The fitted sleeves balloon over the forearms before being tightly cuffed at the wrist, and the neckline of the dress reveals a swath of chest, but Emily's neck was covered entirely by a high collar or the addition of a matching scarf. It's a little hard to tell.
0: Emily stands erect in the portrait with one hand on her hip, dispassionately gazing directly at the viewer. Little context is offered by way of the background, which is two competing shades of ochre brown. And the brown field surrounding Emily's head is broken by a halo-like amorphous form behind Emily's frizzled updo. And the patterning within this form that is placed behind her coordinates, but it doesn't quite match the geometries of her dress.
1: So needless to say, the style bears all the hallmarks of reform dress, which placed emphasis on the wearer's comfort and ease of movement. And the dress in the 1902 Klimt portrait lacks a defined waist, and the natural languid silhouette stands in direct opposition to mainstream fashion of the day, which, as we all know, was tightly tailored. It emphasized the waist above all else. So there was actually a specific type of corset known as the Sherat, so named after its adventress, who was responsible for the fashionable s stance of the era. And the corset aided in pushing a woman's bosom forward and her hips and buttocks back, and it gave this you know desired effect of a swayback or S-bend, as we just referenced. Needless to say, it was a highly artificial look, not really natural.
0: No, and this is pretty much everything that the dress reform movement opposed. (laughs) Novel styles of dress which promoted ease of movement and a healthy lifestyle were put forth by various progressive thinkers during the late 19th century. The dress reform movement in Vienna at the turn of the 20th century was certainly not the first, but the radical styles, which were adopted by artists and intellectuals, served as an inspiration to many fashion designers, like Paul Paré, who were working in more mainstream idioms and had an enormous lasting effect on the trajectory of
1: modern fashion. So, that Emily's dress in the 1902 Klimt portrait is striking as undeniable. If you don't know what we're talking about, dress listeners, Google it immediately because this also applied to other photographs of her taken by Klimt himself. In 1906, a photo essay appeared in the publication Deutsch Kunst, a decoration. And, dress listeners, I obviously, this is not my strong suit, but I'm trying to pronounce. <laughs> these correctly. So forgive me. Um, and this publication featured Emily modeling 10 different dresses. So while some sources cite Klimt as the sole designer of these creations, others call that assignment into question and they suggest that the designs were more likely examples of a collaboration between Klimt and of course the Schwestern Floga. And we do know that the garments featured in the photos were made by the Fashion House and later exhibited there as exclusive designs. So there you go. That seems to answer that question. This
0: particular photo essay is incredibly important, as it is a rare documentation of the work of the Floga Sisters fashion house, which, as I mentioned previously, Cass,
1: is rather challenging to research. Yeah, and I haven't seen pictures of this shoot yet, and now I'm dying to. I can't wait. Well, listeners, we will definitely post
0: some of them on Instagram this week. So the photo essay, you know, has photos of their work, but also the fact that Emily served as the model makes this all the more valuable. All 10 looks are dress reform styles that follow the established quote-unquote kind of like tent dress silhouette that falls floor length to the ground. It's loose at the waist. And the sleeves of all of these dresses pretty much all feature fanciful tiers of ruffles. Um, Some of them kind of are a little bit akin to 18th century engageant, but they are long sleeves. And more often than not, the dresses also feature a high collar.
1: These designs feature little, however, in the way of extraneous embellishment, and none was really needed as most of them were realized, in at least what would be considered at the time, riotously patterned textiles to say, you know, understatement of the year, right? So we have like gigantic floral motifs and bright polka dots made quite the statement, especially when you consider them within the context of more mainstream fashions of the late Victorian era, which often favored a dainty pastel color palette. Not even close. (laughs) There's really no comparison. It's quite astounding, actually.
0: Some of these textiles would be a little, considered a little shocking today. (laughs) (laughs) This is like 120 years ago. Yeah, (laughs) So, if a given dress did feature, uh, from this particular collection that we're talking about, did feature a form of embellishment, it was typically at the front yoke. And one example that Emily models in this shoot appears to have been realized in a light-colored, probably quite expensive, silk dupioni. The sheen of the textile kind of gives it away. And the yoke of the dress is pieced together by five rows of dark and light alternating triangles, the graphic nature of which is really emphasized by the fact that it has contrasting sleeves. And on the sleeves, we have no less than eight flounces appearing at the forearms. (laughs) It's really, really wonderful. And this must've been a favorite look of Emily's as she is also shot wearing the same dress for a portrait by the photographer Madame Dora several years later in 1909. And these dress reform looks were so far ahead of their time cast that it seems in many ways they were kind of
1: just timeless. Yeah. I mean, I think if people, when people look these up and and look at them, you're no one, I think, would instinctually date them to like circa 1900. (laughs) It's kind of amazing. So another favorite from this shoot featured the body of the dress in an oversized floral pattern, but the high necked yoke of the dress was in stark white and it skims the shoulders and it terminated just above the bust where it was trimmed with two horizontal stripes of black ribbon. And then there appears to be additional black trimming in the form of a jabot at the neck, but it's hard to tell exactly what is going on here from the photos. The sleeves again are tiered and the whole look is finished with dark colored gloves of all things. (laughs)
0: Yeah, and to say that I am massively obsessed with this look, Cass, might be the understatement of the century because I would wear it in a heartbeat. Um, (laughs) It would probably be new and surprising even to some people today despite the fact that it is over a century old. And you know my penchant for loud vintage maxi dresses. So, you know, of all the looks in this shoot, all of them, they're really already like in my taste. So maybe I should just have a whole selection of them made for me and, and wear Schwester and Floga as a sort of uniform for the rest of my life. I'm sure I'd <laughs> die happy if I did. <laughs>
1: Well, you do love a good caftan, which probably would make these dress reform styles perfect for you, as -hmm. it's been noted that the sources of inspiration for many of these dress reform silhouettes were either caftans, kimonos, or smocks. And the smock was actually a very favored look for many of the male members of the dress reform movements, including, of course, Gustav himself. As it simultaneously evokes a bourgeoisie sentimentality due to its working class origins and also as a favored garment of the skilled artist craftsperson. And April, I'm laughing because I actually forgot that I have a little Gustav Klimt doll. And he's wearing a he's wearing, <laughs> and he's wearing, a, a, wearing smock. a blue smock. I just remembered that. It's like <laughs> conveniently behind me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, anyways, it's it's so fun to see pictures of him because I don't think that's what you would expect of an artist. But he he's most often photographed wearing a
0: smock. There is a really great photo of Gustav and Emily together when they were on holiday. Emily is wearing a bouffant caftan in black and white vertical stripes. Near the hem of the caftan, a panel has been inset where the striped textile has been cut apart and then pieced together again to form a sort of checkerboard pattern. And then also two checkerboard pattern panels have been vertically inserted at the robe's front. And this look is loud, friends, but what I really love about the photo is that and it's a kind of like a series of photos of the two of them, but in some of them Emily is like hysterically laughing, um, <laughs> which which I just think is really really fun. The two are definitely having a good time when they did this photo shoot.
1: Yeah, they really loved each other and enjoyed each other's company. So Clem's look while the silhouette was radical is in its fancifulness comparatively tame. It's more or less again a floor length smock. So we have light pleats at the shoulders that create a slight gathering down the front and only embellishments are like inset panels featuring a circular geometric motif placed on top of the shoulder pleats. And the textile is sturdy but it actually has a slight sheen to it. So maybe it's like an expensive heavy linen, not entirely sure. And this is not the only photo out there, again, as, as I mentioned, of Clint toning a smock. There are others as well, so clearly this was a favored style. We are going to take a brief sponsor break here, but
0: more fashions from the Floga Sisters when we come back. All right, welcome back, dress listeners, back to the Western Floga. We have established that in the early years of the business, the sisters were creating avant-garde fashions in the Viennese dress reform style. But something rather fascinating that I learned while working on this episode, cast is that they were also offering more mainstream French fashions. Apparently, several former employees of the house who were interviewed later note that Emily traveled to Paris and in London, sometimes as well, twice a year for decades, basically to scope out the latest in European couture.
1: Yes, formal model for the house, Elizabeth Sharoni, recalled, quote, regularly at the beginning of February and at the end of August. She traveled to the major fashion shows in Paris, then ordered the materials from Paris, and using me as a tailor's dummy, recreated the Parisian fashions. That is to say, adapted them to the Viennese figure, end quote.
0: We know, for instance, that on a trip in 1909, Emily and her sister Helene traveled to both London and Paris, returning with designs purchased from Chanel and textiles from the luxury manufacturer Rodier. And just a little bit on that comment from the quote you read, Cass, about the Viennese figure, this was apparently a whole thing that I ran across in my research. There were a lot of Viennese social critics from the era um, that went way far out of their way to make the point that the fashionable body type in Paris was a lot slimmer and more petite than what was favored in Vienna, where a large bosom and ample hips was what was considered covetable. So this is just a you know brief side note here, friends, that in any given era, the quote unquote fashionable body type
1: is always a cultural construction. Absolutely. And also just to point out, while many of the dress reform styles offered by the Floga sisters might not require extensive fittings, they were also doing custom made-to-measure looks based on Parisian trends as well. So this was kind of like one-stop shopping. So you could cater to both dress reform and haute couture taste. Maybe somebody dabbled in both. And this way, the sisters were able to entice a wider clientele by playing both sides of the coin, so to speak. And they were enormously
0: successful in doing so, and their offerings were tremendously expensive. <laughs> I found information on the price points at Swester Floga to be particularly interesting. Basically, just to sum up, their prices were about 10 times higher than what it would cost to hire a private dressmaker to realize a made-to-measure look. Scholar Wolfgang Fischer makes note that in 1912, the price tag on a Schwestern Floga pleated skirt ran 190 crowns, whereas a similar skirt made by the custom salon of a department store would have cost about 39 crowns. So, Schwestern Floga customers were paying four to five times department store prices and ten times the price of private dressmakers for the privilege of being a patron of this Schwestern
1: Floga. So likewise, we must also note that Weiner Werkstatt fashions were also prohibitively expensive to most or many. So despite the socialist underpinnings of, you know, the art and everything movements, like the arts and craft movement and the credo behind the Weiner Werkstatt. These were more often than not artisanal luxury goods, and the cost of fine craftsmanship really was underscored and undermined, of course, by falling prices made possible by mass-produced goods. And Emily herself often wore Weiner's Werkstatt garments in addition to her own house's creations, and this, of course, included the many pieces of Weiner Werkstatt jewelry which Gustav gifted her over the course of many, many years. Let's
0: get back into that relationship a little, shall we? Yes. (laughs) A closer look into their dynamics was afforded to scholars in 1983 when a cache of items belonging to Emily's estate were discovered. In addition to several pieces of the aforementioned minor workshop jewelry gifted to her by Gustav, there were also some 400 postcards documenting the correspondence between the two. And at this time when this discovery was announced, Klimt scholars practically salivated at this discovery, hoping that the missives and the letters would finally prove a romantic connection between them. But their hopes were dashed after reading the communications, which were sometimes multiple times a day, I would like to add. You know, I guess that Casa would kind of be like texting someone all day, you know, back
1: and
0: forth. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the postcards basically proved that While they did correspond about the most intimate details of their life, it seems a sexual connection between the two never manifested, and close friends of theirs at the time specifically deny that their relationship was ever consummated in that particular way.
1: Yeah, so they were just very, very close friends. Of course, that is not to say that Klimt did not enjoy a robust sexual appetite. And while his two sisters went out of their way to paint their brother as a quiet homebody, I mean, he lived with his family his entire life. He never married. Apparently, dress listeners, the quote-unquote scene at his studio was something very different. (laughs) It's believed, I can't believe this. I mean, I can't believe it, but I did not know this. It's believed that he fathered some 14 children out of wedlock, Mm -hmm. many of them with the models who sat for his paintings. And some of his affairs were actually even conducted with the high society woman he was commissioned to paint. (laughs) And his discretion in these matters has been remarked upon by many of his biographers. So it's a well-known fact.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, it kind of makes sense, Cass, because many of his paintings, particularly of women, are highly erotically charged. So where was he getting all that energy from? You know, you you get my drift. And it seems Emily was aware of his relationships with other women as they were of his relationship with her. Letters between Klimt and one of his baby mamas speak openly about Emily. And this particular mistress even complains about Emily's presence in his life. She was apparently quite jealous.
1: Well, her squeaky will definitely got the grease as she was one of the few mothers of his children to whom he paid child support. So, in fact, I think she had to threaten legal action or actually sue him to do so, but she did get it. And remember at the beginning of this episode, he was dubbed the Enfant Terrible of Vienna. So, well, I guess he lived up to his (laughs) reputation in more ways than one. Um, so
0: it seems that while the lovers in his life got one side of Gustav, Emily got the other— his tenderness and care for her is so evident in these letters. He had a whole host of nicknames for her and frequently sent her notes throughout the day by way of a messenger, you know, little banal things like noting the weather, or he just had like a vague general complaint about something. Other messages to her notify her of his time of return by train and hope that she will meet him at the station. It's it's a very interesting relationship, Cass. You know, something more than a friendship. It was a Devoted partnership of sorts that never became a marriage, but for all intents and purposes, Emily was the wife figure in his life.
1: And while their personal intimacy ran deep, the two actually maintained separate personal affairs. Emily was independent financially. Uh, She did not seem to mind the arrangement that they had. And it's not really known if she longed for more, but it has been noted that following Gustav's death in 1918 at the age of 56, Emily never sought out a romantic partner and she more or less carried on as she had before heading the Schwestern Floga.
0: Yes, and this is something that we haven't really mentioned yet, but according to former employees, despite the presence of her two older sisters, it was Emily who was a driving force behind the business. A former assistant recalled, quote, it was Emily Floga, in particular, who kept the salon going. It was due only to her initiative that the firm reached such a height. I was particularly fascinated about how busy she was, how industrious. She was one of the first in, in the morning." And she also, this assistant, went on to note how Emily personally draped garments on custom mannequins that were created in the measurements of their most important clients. And I just love this idea. This is just so wonderful. They they were definitely not the only couture house to do this, but it is
1: charming. Yeah, in some couture houses, those mannequins still exist, and they have like the names of the famous client, right? So they're a treasure. So at the height of Schwester Floga's success, it's estimated that they employed as many as 80 seamstresses. However, by the 1930s, that number had shrunk to some 20 seamstresses and two cutters— As was also the case for the Weiner-Wirkstadt's fashion division, as we will learn more about on Thursday, patrons who had come for dress reform styles in the 19 aughts were now getting older, and the number of clients began to dwindle down naturally during the late 1920s. It seems that
0: Emily never flagged in her efforts, however, to keep the offerings of the Schwestern and fresh and new— one of the house models from the 1930s recalled Emily returning from Paris, bringing back, quote, patterns from Balenciaga, Chanel, Dior, and Scaparelli. And of these, Scaparelli fashions were primarily used for evening wear, end quote. So, until researching this, I had no idea that there was a connection
1: between two of my all-time favorite designers' casts. I know, I learned so much in this episode. Um, Although we will say this, we might need to question this former model's recollections as she does mention Dior. And as we know, Dior launched his namesake Cotier House in 1947. So long after Schwester and Floga had shuttered its doors. So maybe it could be that she was buying Dior designs before he was actually in the employ of Robert Piquet. But the timing of this all seems a little off.
0: Yeah, Piguet hired Dior in 1937 or 1938. And 1938 is the same year that the restaurant floga closed in light of World War II looming on the horizon. Former assistant Herta Vanka again, quote, I stayed with the firm until its closure in 1938. I helped wind up the business, in particular, clearing up the many, many things that were there. And sadly, in 1938, the furnishings were worth hardly anything. No one was interested in Jugendstil, and my employers were very unhappy because the furniture and fittings were of good quality and beautifully made by the Weiner-Werkstatt. So in 1938, we closed down, and the ladies moved to Ungargas, 39. Helene Dunner, who was the niece of both Emily and Gustav by Blood, Cass, was the last of the Klimt dynasty, lived there too until her death in 1980, end quote.
1: Emily herself had passed in 1952 at the age of 77, living the last 33 years of her life without her beloved Gustav. And while they never married, perhaps any legal recognition of the relationship was superfluous to them both. It was after all Emily who Gustav asked for upon his deathbed and his last written words to her were, I should like to get away. At the time of the founding of the Schwestern Floga, Klimt scholar Wolfgang Fischer writes
0: that, quote, a clarion call had been issued by the, quote, Viennese ladies' dressmakers in the local fashion industry, a call that was answered by Klimt and Floga in their explorations of the aesthetic outer limits of fashion at the time. While eccentric more than 100 years ago, their garments, as is often the case with fashion's greats, still look fresh and modern and even avant-garde to us today.
1: The love beating between these two hearts is evidenced in their fashion collaborations. And April, you did such a lovely job on this episode. And I was just curious if you know if any of these Western floga garments survive in museum collections or private collections, where did you find them? There are lots out there. Um, Obviously, it is no surprise
0: that um, a lot of them reside in Vienna. And there's more textile examples in museum collections. And that's something that we're actually going to get into a bit on Thursday.
1: Well, until then, dress listeners, I think that does it for us today. May you consider where the love resides in your closet next time you get dressed. Remember to tune into Thursday's episode where, as April just mentioned, we're going to take a deeper dive into the work of the groundbreaking art collective, the Weiner-Werkstat. Until then, we love hearing from you. If you'd like to write to us, you can do so at iHeartMedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where we post images accompanying each week's episodes.
0: If you have time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we do appreciate it. As we also appreciate our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. More Dressed coming your way on Thursday. Dressed, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.